gospel that we would uh, appreciate not just kind of the legal side of it, that we are forgiven and set free, but also the relational side of it, what it means that we are children of the living God. We thank you, we love you, we praise you, we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, good morning, it is good to be here, good to worship with you. One of the things I was thinking about this week was how in life we have a lot of have-tos uh, and, um, and get-tos. Do you remember when you were little and you would complain to your parents, they say something like, do I have to clean my room? And they would say something like, well, you don't have to, you get to. Now, I don't know about you, but did that ever work? Like in the history of time, were you ever like fooled and like, oh man, you are so right. Like I get to clean my room. I'm the luckiest kid in the world. Why didn't I think of that? Um, hopefully you, you noticed my sarcasm. I'll probably never write a book, but if I do, it's gonna be preaching sarcasm and the glory of God. So you can all write an endorsement for it. Right, but we, we quickly understood that there were a lot of have-tos, like you know, eating vegetables and doing homework and taking out the trash, and those are very different from the get-tos, the, the eating pizza and sleeping in and playing sports. And as we've gotten older, we realize that we still have our get-tos and our have-tos. Like, it doesn't matter if you tell me I get to do something, it, that doesn't always make it better. Uh, when my kids were young, if my wife asked me to change their diapers and I said, do I have to? She would never say like, no, you get to. Like, we understood that changing diapers was always a have-to. Well, it came to mind because as we're discussing our church culture, I'm guessing for some of you, there are a lot of Christian have-tos. You have to love people and forgive people and be patient with people. You, you have to serve and, and give um, of yourself to ministry. You have to be generous with your money and share your faith with unbelievers. And so with this, that the Christian faith, with all of its get-tos, is also made difficult by its have-tos. But what I hope to see, that, that we'll see this morning, is that the have-tos of the Christian life are really meant to be get-tos for this simple reason. When the gospel has its way in us, that natural inward bent of the heart that makes uh, something a have-to is turned upward and outward. And the self-love that always leads to unhappiness is redirected to others. And when we can truly love others, joy is the natural result. Love then becomes a get-to because really it means we get to truly experience the joy that God intended. And so that's what we'll be looking at this morning. And so with that in mind, if you have your Bibles, open with me to Galatians chapter 3. We've been in a series on the cruciform church. Initially, we were going to look at that idea for four weeks, but really the cruciform church and the cruciform people are what the letter of Galatians is about. As we have said, we're defining the cruciform church like Paul describes the believers in, in, uh, in, uh, believers in his letter to the Galatians as a people shaped by the message of the cross to show the love of the cross. Remember what he says in Galatians chapter two? He says, I live, in Galatians 2.20, I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And so Paul's saying that I, that I live every day by faith in Jesus who gave himself for me. He's telling us that we need to be shaped by the message of the cross. But then he goes on to say in Galatians 5.13, for you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. So what is our purpose in the freedom in, in the gospel? What happens when we're shaped by the message of the cross? We love and we serve well. And so as we continue our study through Galatians, the hope is that we'll continue to see what it means to be a cruciform people and a cruciform church. 
And practically, as you can imagine, this is pretty significant because it affects a lot of things, but particularly the culture of this church, like who we are as Lighthouse. This is something we'll be discussing in our small groups in this coming series. And as I, but as I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, culture is about beliefs and behaviors. It's about customs and norms. For, for us at Lighthouse, it's the way that we do life as a church family. So culture is about how we view and respond to sin, how we walk alongside of sufferers, how we understand serving and giving, how we react to the failures of others, how we understand Sunday worship, how we prioritize church and fellowship. And in part, this is what Paul was addressing in the Galatian churches, right? Because they were not being shaped by the message of the cross, they were struggling to show the love of the cross. For example, we have the situation Paul really zeroes in on when Peter and other Jews weren't eating with the Gentiles. And so there was this huge division between Jews and Gentiles because of this weak understanding of the gospel and really a weak embracing of the gospel. Beyond that, Paul mentions in, in, verse, in chapter five, sin kind of infiltrating the church and, and he likens it to leaven that permeates dough. And then he, as he points out, the result is in this idea of biting and devouring one another. But did you hear that biting and devouring one another? This wasn't just about some general sin we struggle with, but he, they were worried about what that sin and selfishness will do to a church family. Now, as much as, as we know this is wrong, no one here is arguing that churches should be marked by selfishness. If we're honest, we all know what that feels like. We know the struggle to love certain people, maybe especially those who have wronged us. We know uh, the struggle to be generous with our finances, knowing that every dollar given away is a dollar that we can't spend on ourselves or our family or to save. We know the struggle to serve because life seems busy enough without some major commitment to the church. We know the struggle to meet new people because it just seems so comfortable to lean into the friendships we have. We know the struggle of having a consumeristic mentality when it comes to church, kind of sitting down and thinking, okay, how will this church serve me? So again, while all of us would say the church should be marked by love, all of us can currently know the struggle to love. And I say this not to point fingers because I know it's true of my life. I know the selfish bent in my heart is tempted to view the church and to view others in a way that God does not intend. So what is our hope in all of this? As you know, it is the message of the cross. It's the gospel. And that's why after condemning the division that Peter and the other Jewish leaders were perpetuating within the churches, Paul then jumps into this extended discussion of the gospel. And that brings us to our passage this morning. So let me read it. We're gonna start, uh, we're gonna look at chapters three, verses 29 through chapter four, verse seven. But let me back up to verse 28 for context. Paul writes this, there is, is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So he's arguing for unity in Christ. Like what a, a special culture when a church has that kind of unity. Then he says, and. Now that and is continuing Paul's argument about what brings unity. Um, and how that's found in the gospel. So look at verse, 28, or verse 29. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. 
But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. So really, it's a a beautiful picture of the gospel, but not just focusing on the judicial side of it, but the relational side as well. In other words, whereas the previous section had focused on kind of justification, right? How, How in Christ we can be declared righteous or right with God. Here he also focuses on the, on the relational side of the gospel. What it means that, that God doesn't just forgive us and free us, but that he embraces us and he adopts us and he makes us his own. And this really should give a fuller picture of why we can love others. Okay, remember, this is, a, this is following a verse discussing unity we have in Christ. It precedes an even more specific call to love and to serve. And so what I want us to see is that because of Christ, love is not meant to be a duty, but a delight. And that that leads us to our key idea. Because of the gospel, loving others isn't the burden of a slave, but the blessing of a son. Because of the gospel, loving others isn't the burden of a slave, but the blessing of a son. And hopefully, again, you'll see the significance of this because it really could change everything. I mean, imagine you thought of love, even in difficult moments, as something you get to do and not have to do. Wouldn't that be a radical transformation? I want to understand, when the gospel brings us into God's family, love is something we get to do. So it's like a two ways the gospel allows loving others to be a blessing. First, the Savior establishes our position as sons and not slaves. The Savior establishes our position as sons and not slaves. Now, two quick points of clarity, because I don't want you to get caught up here. First, I am using the phrase sons with purpose. Uh, Now, it may seem like we should say sons and daughters, because the reality is the passage is speaking to both men and women. After all, he did just say there is no male uh, and female. So why not say sons and daughters? First of all, it is the phrase that Paul uses, but importantly, we have to understand that most often in ancient cultures, it was only sons and generally firstborn sons who would receive an inheritance. So really, Paul was being very inclusive in saying that everyone in Christ, regardless of gender, is an heir who receives an inheritance. He wants men and women to understand that in Christ, they are heirs of God himself. Women were never going to be second-class citizens in the kingdom of heaven. It's also important to note that Paul is fairly equitable in his gender illustrations, right? One of his greatest illustrations for the church is a female one, right? We are the bride of Christ, Paul also likens himself uh, to a nursing mother because of his care for others. And just the point is this, in this instance, the use of the gender-specific word is meant to be an encouragement that all of us, regardless of of whether we're a a man or a woman, uh, if we're in Christ, we are an heir to God. Second, and a little more simply, even though it's currently a very loaded term, I use the term slave because it's the term that Paul uses because he wants us to really understand the true tragedy of enslavement to sin and their former ways. But importantly, we can't import an 18th or 19th century American slavery into our understanding of this passage, right? Though slavery during Paul's time was neither right nor good, it was at the very least different than we often picture it. So I hope you don't kind of get caught up on these terms, but with that, let's jump into this. So Paul in verse 28, he's talking about unity. He says, there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. 
We discussed this a couple of weeks ago, but this wasn't about being united uh, around the gospel or for the gospel, but in the gospel. And the difference was that this isn't a unity born of having the same convictions or the same calling, though we need those things, but this is a unity born in a common experience of grace. By that I mean what makes us unified isn't that we all believe the same thing or we all rally around the same cause, Rather, that when the gospel transforms each of our hearts, it results in this gospel love, and that results in gospel unity. For example, he mentioned in chapter five that one of the outworkings of the gospel is that we serve one another. But how does that happen? How do we just, I mean, what makes us want to serve another person? Is it when we rally around the gospel or rally for the gospel? Again, while those are important, what will really lead to us serving one another is when the gospel has its way in us when it places before us the beauty of Christ and the worthiness of living for him, when through grace it overcomes our inward bent and excites us to sacrifice for others, when it redirects our love and affections upward so it then overflows outward towards others, that is when uh, we will love and we will sacrifice. Now this idea that it is the gospel's work in us that leads us to love well is where Paul has been taking us. If we back up to chapter two, we remember that Paul talks about this division caused because of this shallow understanding of the gospel and shallow faith in the gospel. And this is where Peter and and the other Jews were refusing to eat with Gentiles. And like I pointed out a couple of weeks ago, consider kind of the tragedy of, of that, of someone turning to someone else in the church and saying, I don't want to eat with you. Definitely a lack of gospel love. So what is the solution? Well, Paul doesn't tell them just to behave or try harder. He says the solution is in the gospel. And that's why at the end of chapter two, he argues that we must live this life every moment by faith in Christ and the reality that he gave his life for us. Then to build on that in chapter three, he argues that while the law has its role, we have this greater and perfect hope in the gospel. And with this powerful picture of the gospel in mind, at the end of that section, he offers the result of what happens when the gospel does its work in us. Contrary to refusing to eat one another, he says we are one in Christ Jesus. So as we come to verse 29, we have to see that Paul is building on that idea. Right? He's showing the unity described in verse 28 is the result of the gospel. And that's why, again, he says in verse 29, and he says, and if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. If you remember, there there was this debate as to whether Gentile Christians had to convert not only to Christianity, but to Judaism as well. The idea being if they wanted to experience the promises made to Abraham to be his heir, then they would, in a sense, have to become Jewish. But Paul says, if you're in Christ, then you are in Abraham's offspring. Your heir is according to the promise. In other words, what allows us to be heirs to Abraham and to receive the blessings promised to uh, to him is not if we are Jewish, but if we know Christ. And Paul then uses this as an opportunity to discuss what it means to be heirs. I mean, that's a, a beautiful picture. And so as we jump into chapter four, Paul says to be an heir means we are sons and not slaves. We are sons and not slaves. In other words, the gospel changes our position from one of slave to the things of this world to sons of the living God. He says this in verses one and two. I mean that the heirs, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything, but he is under the guardians and manners until the date set by his father. So he's saying before the gospel, the people had, of God had the law and, and it pointed to Christ, but it wasn't enough to actually save them. 
And so it would be like children um, who, who were heirs, right? They had the promise of things to come, but as children, they still had their rules. They, they still had to live under the authority of, no, of another. They weren't truly free. And in a sense, he says, it's like they, they, they're, still in, they're, they're still like a slave. And that's what the law does. In the Old Testament, it served its purpose. It demonstrated a sin. It pointed people to Christ, but it couldn't actually save you, which means apart from Christ, law or not, you were under the bondage of sin. And this is why Paul says it's enslaving, verse three. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Elementary principles likely being the former life of religious duty and commitment to the things of the world and yet still being stuck in sin. But then Paul says the gospel changes everything, verses four and five. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Remember, the Bible tells us that we're sinners, right? Paul uses the term under the law. The idea being that the law points out that we're all sinners, but it can't actually save us. Imagine a set of rules written on the wall with each one having the harsh but fair judgment of death for breaking those rules. The rules would kind of tell you how to live and might restrain immorality a bit, but as you read the rules and you realize that you've broken most of them, in the end, those rules give you this message, you are condemned, right? But the cross is where we find our hope. It says he redeems those under the law, meaning that he purchases us out of slavery. How? By paying our debt. Christ suffered the punishment on our behalf so that we would never have to. To kind of use our previous example, imagine looking at that list of rules on the wall that, that tells we're lawbreakers, that punishment is coming, and then you notice over each punishment is the words paid in full. And you see what this does? It fundamentally changes our position before God. We were enemies, and now we're heirs. We were slaves, and now we're sons. Now, hopefully, you realize how, how great this is, and we'll talk about it more in the next point. But how does this speak to issues of division in church culture? Like, why does this lead to unity? Why does Paul establish this before he gets into such things as avoiding, um, biting, and devouring? Maybe, most simply, how does our position as sons encourage us to love one another? And there's two ideas here. One is our adoption, our position as sons, changes our orientation away from sin. Often when we think of division, we think of just differences, right? Right, this is Super Bowl Sunday. I hope you'll be joining us to watch the game afterwards this afternoon. Uh, even if you didn't sign up, please come out. But where do people think of the division? Obviously, it's between, it's Niners and Chiefs. I asked a couple of people uh, who were rooting, who they were rooting for. And, and being from LA, they generally aren't NorCal sports fans but they said they're rooting for the Niners. And so I said, why? And they said, and I quote, I would die a slow death seeing Taylor Swift on the field celebrating a Super Bowl. <laughs> so if you're a Swifty, you can judge those people who may or may not be related to me. But <laughs> often when we think of division, we think they're rooted in differences, right? But remember, and this is really important to understand, it is sin that makes unity truly hard. It's not differences of opinions or, or uh, uh, cultural upbringing or political leanings or ethnic identity on a Sunday like this. It's not favorite sports teams. It's sin. Sin is at the heart of every struggle to love and to serve. 
I remember sin is about elevating self over God and others. And when this is the case, the direction of love is always inward and never upward and outward. And this is why the idea of the law or having rules in and of itself doesn't truly work because our hearts will constantly be seeking our, their, their own ends. And that's why Christianity isn't just about telling people to stop sinning or you're a bad person or you need to try to be a better person. Christianity is about the gospel, right? And the gospel fundamentally changes our orientation away from sin. This is how Paul describes it in Romans 6, 6. He says, we know that our old self was crucified with him, with Christ, in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. In other words, the gospel doesn't just free us from the penalty of sin, but the power of sin. And this doesn't mean that sin doesn't exist, we're all still sinners, but it means it no longer enslaves us. Sin isn't our master. Now on one hand, one thing this does is it, it addresses our excuses for not loving others. Because often we excuse our lack of love and serving by making indictments against other people, right? It's too hard because of the way they are, because they did this to me, because they're too proud, too selfish, too mean, too self-absorbed. Or sometimes we make an indictment against our situation, our circumstances. I'm so busy, work is stressful, the kids take all my time. Sometimes we even make indictments against ourselves, right? It's me, I'm just, I'm too weak, I'm too sinful, I'm too mature. But realize in the end, when we say we can't love, we can't serve, we can't forgive, our greatest indictment isn't against other people or our circumstances or even ourselves. Our greatest indictment is against God. Because he says the power of the gospel allows us to serve faithfully and to love well, even our enemies. And we're saying, God can't really accomplish that in me. The gospel is lacking in some way. The death of Christ doesn't offer enough grace. And I say this not just to pile on the pastoral guilt, as much as to make sure that we really understand what we're saying when we say, I can't love that person. We're failing to recognize the power of the gospel. But this is not just about conviction, but it's about hope. Because I know most of us have felt it was hard to love, hard to forgive, hard to be generous, hard to persevere in serving. But don't forget that sin is what makes it truly hard. Yet now in Christ, that sin is no longer your master. And so you have to believe that you can love, you can serve through the power of the gospel. And it doesn't mean it will necessarily be easy, but it does mean we have hope. And that hope is so important to us as believers. Like in our counseling ministry, one of the most devastating things is when someone loses hope. Because no matter how great the sin they're struggling with, no matter how great the suffering they're struggling with, as long as they have hope in the gospel, we know that change can come. But the minute they lose hope is the minute they will be, feel, they will be truly overwhelmed by their sin and their suffering. And the same is true for us. If we don't have hope that we can change, we will be overwhelmed. But now just pause and think about how to apply this. How, how can you make this church culture special? Like how could you be a part of something special here at Lighthouse? How can you love uniquely? How can you do what God is calling you to do? How can you forgive someone who hurt you when no one else in the world would forgive someone for that? How can you serve in a way that's really stepping out of your comfort zone? Like, or, or just making a greater commitment to being involved? How can you sacrificially give to support the church or maybe keep a missionary on the, on the missionary field? 
Love, how can you love someone who's very different from you in just about every way? It comes in the gospel and you need to have the hope that you can. Not because you are so great, you are so strong, you are so loving, but because of the power of Christ. But our adoption doesn't just change our orientation towards sin, but being our notes, our adoption, right, our position before God changes our orientation towards one another. Like I pointed out, what makes loving others difficult is sin. So if I can find victory over that sin, then I can, I can love and serve faithfully and joyfully. And I use that term joyfully with purpose because, and this seems to be part of Paul's point, apart from the gospel, there is little joy in loving others, especially difficult people. There's little joy in serving, there's little joy in being generous, right? In reality, those things seem, as he says, enslaving, especially if you see it just from the standpoint of the law, like it's just another rule. In other words, if loving others is just a rule you must follow, that's pretty hard. So you may not want to serve or give or forgive or be patient or any of that, but that's what good Christians do. So you have to follow the Christian rules. You can kind of imagine uh, Israel was in this dilemma. They had so many rules, right? You know, religious rituals and animal sacrifices. And when it was just a law, it was enslaving. And most of us have felt that. Remember when you're, again, when you're little and your parents say, hey, love your sibling, right? And there's maybe at the time very little affection going on. And, and it's just kind of this rule. It's something that you have to do. And it seems like this burden, like I have to love them even though they, they do this. I think most of us feel this. We know what it's like to understand what we're supposed to do. And yet it's the exact opposite of what we want to do. Like for me, one, one time I feel this is like when I need to ask forgiveness for my family, that can be that moment. Like, have you felt that? Like you've sinned against your wife or you've sinned against your kids and you know you need to ask for forgiveness and yet simply you don't want to, right? And for me, there's often that moment of internal debate until the Holy Spirit has its way, to, a way in me. So what, are, what is it for you? What are those things that you feel like are the have to do's rather than the get to do's? Like maybe you're okay with, with uh, showing up and, and coming to church, but struggling, but sin is a, or serving is a struggle. Maybe you're okay with serving, but giving is a struggle. Or maybe someone hurt you and you're supposed to reconcile, but you feel like you can't. Or maybe just coming out of your comfort zone and meeting new people. Like we're gonna, after church, there'll be you know, hundreds of people milling around and what will be your temptation just to kind of go towards people you know? Well, again, if these are just the, the have-tos, when they're just rules, like good Christians do this, that's pretty burdensome. But it isn't supposed to be that way. Loving others isn't about the duty of a slave, but the delight of a son. It's not the burden, but a blessing. And that's why when he calls us to love in chapter five, he's, it isn't just a rule to follow, but it comes out of our freedom. Listen to what he says in Galatians 5, 13 and 14. For you were called to freedom, brothers, freedom. Only do not use your freedom for an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another for the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. This is what the gospel does, right? It frees us to love. Now love may sound confining and not freeing, but as we've often discussed, love brings joy while bitterness makes us miserable. As I've quoted on more than one occasion, um, I think it was Augustine who said, bitterness is like drinking poison and hoping the other person dies. I'm sure y'all know people who struggle to love. Are they happy? Do they ever say like, I'm really having trouble loving this person and I, I just feel great, like I feel amazing? No, they're, they're miserable. Maybe this is you, maybe you, you know, there's someone you struggle to love and every time they come to mind, you're not joyful. Every time you have to come across them in a family get together, you're not joyful. You, every time you have to see them in a small group, you're not joyful. 
A lack of love may feel justified or fair, but does it bring you any joy? I believe the same lack of joy comes from, can come from things like stinginess and selfishness and all that. But when the gospel frees us from the inward bent or the selfishness that makes us miserable, we're then free to love. And in our love, we find joy. And hopefully you, you can relate to that experience. Have you ever just finally forgiven someone? Like you were so angry or you're so bitter and then finally when you were able just to forgive them and to love them, it was just so much joy, right? All of a sudden, instead of having to see them, you, you would want to see them. And everything was different. That's the gospel. Like I'm guessing that at least some of you are pretty miserable right now because you're really struggling to love someone. But if you let the gospel do its work in you, you can be free from bitterness and free to love. That's why Paul says the old ways they're enslaving, but the gospel were free. So here we start. The son changes our position from slaves to, to sons. The second idea is this. The spirit allows us to experience the privilege of being sons and not slaves. The spirit allows us to experience the privilege of being sons and not slaves. As we consider the gospel, it's important that, of course, that we focus on our justification. Justification has to do with God's declaration that a per person is righteous or right with God through belief and trust in the work of Christ. Maybe think of it in judicial terms, like we were condemned, but God, uh, Christ, uh, but in Christ our judgment has been paid, we're set free. But importantly, the gospel isn't just about our legal state. And that's why Paul also wants us to focus on our relationship with our triune God. Makes sense? Backing up to Galatians 2.20, remember Paul talked about the importance of living by faith, living each moment and embracing the gospel. And he says, the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So we see justification. We live by faith in the Son of God who gave himself for me. But notice that's not all that Paul says. He says, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me. And that's about relationships. And this makes sense of where Paul then goes after that statement because he talks about justification, really elaborates on it in chapter three, but as he comes to chapter four, he now starts to build on the idea of relationship. Specifically, he talks about adoption and how God is our heavenly father. Look at Galatians four, five, and seven. He says, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Paul could have simply said, we are justified. Like, you're, hey, you're justified, you're forgiven, you get to go to heaven, you know, done deal. But he slows down and says, you know, we're sons and God is our father. And what this tells us is that for us to really know the fullness of the gospel, we have to experience that we aren't just saved, but we're sons. And this is important because sometimes reality and our experience of reality can be very different. When I was younger, I, I really did not like roller coasters. And the thing is, if you'd asked me, it wasn't like I thought they were unsafe. Like I really thought I was gonna die, but I felt like when I was on them, I was gonna die, right? The, 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 the experience, um, but I remember th there was a time in middle school, our whole school went to Magic Mountain and, um, and there was this uh, attractive young lady who asked me if I'd want to go on a roller coaster with her. And obviously I want to say no, because I don't, I don't want to die. But being a middle school boy talking to a girl, I said, uh, yeah, like who doesn't like roller coasters? We're <laughs> definitely not going to die in that thing. 
but in my heart, I'm thinking we're for sure gonna die. So I've, I've had 14 good years. Let's, uh, I know Jesus, I'm gonna meet him now. But it's, again, it's not that I really thought that they were unsafe. Um, I realized, um, but it was just that experience. Now, it was nice, because at the time, I finally realized I do actually enjoy roller coasters, so since then, I've enjoyed them. Um, but it was this vivid picture of what I know to be true um, and kind of what I, don't, what I feel. And to our point, the gospel means we're right with God. We're his very children, but it doesn't mean that we always feel that, right? And I think this is why Paul moves from kind of judicial terms to relational terms. He doesn't want us just to know that we're saved. He wants us to experience the beauty and the blessedness of the gospel. Again, that's why he says, so you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, an heir through God. Isn't that amazing? Not just judicial standing, it's a relationship. It's like the oft-used illustration. Imagine you commit a crime against a judge and he has every right to condemn you to punishment. It would be this extraordinary act of mercy for him to let you go, to declare that you're free. But what would be more shocking is if he came down from his bench and said, right, come home with me and be my son, right? What I have is yours. I'll give you an inheritance. That's God with us. And importantly, God wants us to experience that and live out of, out of that reality. In other words, if you're going to be a faithful Christian, you can't just live out of your position, out of your forgiveness, but you have to live out of your privilege that, as a, that you are a child of the God of this universe who loves you more than you can possibly fathom. And that's why Paul uses this beautiful term adoption. The idea being that we were enemies of God, we were slaves to sin, we were spiritual orphans with no home and no future, but in the gospel, God adopts us and makes us his own. And this means that we are fully and completely God's children. And you can imagine as Paul's writing this that he really hopes they understand the beauty of this. I mean, it's amazing. It should be shocking that though we are sinners, God makes us his sons. And understand, as a father of an adopted child, he is not kind of a child. He is 100% mine, and I love him more than he can understand. In fact, one thing you should never ask a family who has adopted is, oh, and do you have real kids? All my kids are real kids, 100%. I love each of them like they are my own because they are my own. And this is what God has done for us. We are not some general mass of believers that he saved. He loves each one of us personally because we are his children. I mean, just pause and take that in. I know for me, Christianity can feel like a lot, depending on the day. Sometimes it feels like a bunch of things I have to do. Sometimes it feels like God is distant, and I'm one of a group of, of nameless believers. Sometimes I feel alone. Sometimes I feel like a failure. Sometimes I wonder, like, why I don't have more faith? And God looks at me and sees his son. He is near, and he is present. He is forgiven, and he is loving. He is kind, and he is merciful. And so right now, even as you sit here surrounded by hundreds of other believers, God knows you and he loves you. He knows your suffering, he knows your sin, and he calls you his son. And this is why God doesn't just leave us with the knowledge of our justification. You are forgiven. He wants us to really feel and experience the privilege of sonship. In other words, he doesn't want it to stay theory. 
He wants us to, to really feel this to the core of our soul. And that's why he says in verse six, and because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. In other words, while the son established the position of sonship, the spirit helps us to experience the privilege of sonship. And you see the picture? I mean, remember, our God is a triune God. The doctrine of the Trinity being this, that God eternally exists as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Each person is fully God, and yet there's only one God. Now, there, this is one of the great mysteries of the Christian faith, and yet, as mysterious as it is, it's also crucial and beautiful. We believe in one God who has always existed in three persons. But the point I want us to make from this is that our triune God accomplished our sonship, um, our, our triune God accomplished our sonship through the Son, but then he took our experience of sonship so seriously that he got in us, in the person of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of the Son, which then enables us to cry out to God as our Heavenly Father. This phrase, Abba, has often been translated as the idea of Daddy. Right, and it's this intimate, it's this idea of this intimate relationship with God that we actually get to cry out to this one who loves us, like daddy. And this reality should change everything about our lives. So how does this specifically encourage unity? Again, how does this encourage us to love and serve one another? When we experience sonship, when we are able to cry out to God, it says so much about God's love for us and that frees us to love one another. Let me give you a few examples. In your notes, it says, we cry, Father, knowing that he's near. In the passage, it says, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Or if you think about it, Jesus was the only one who should have been able to cry out, Father. But through our adoption, we're given the spirit of the son so that we can cry out, Father. And this is the promise of presence and involvement and nearness. And this is important because when you think about it, many of our struggles and worries come down to this, that we, whatever we're facing feels like it's too great for us. It's too hard to forgive. It's too hard to persevere. It's too hard to keep serving. It's too hard to be generous. And the reality is if God is not near, then those things are too hard. So if we don't feel God is with us, then so many things seem impossible. And this is why biblically, the nearness of God is such an important reality that we're meant to understand and believe. Over and over you read things in scripture like the nearness of God is my good, or the Lord is near to the brokenhearted, or the Lord is near to the, all who call upon him. I mean, if we believe that God is near, present in our struggles, it makes all the difference. And this passage tells us he is. We get to call it Abba Father, not with the hopes that he will hear or that he is near, but with the true confidence that he is present to hear our cries. I mean, think about that. God is with you as you seek to walk with the person in church mired in sin. You're, you're walking with the brother and sister and they're hurting and you don't know what to do. God is with you as you seek to sacrifice and be generous because you believe in the importance of the gospel, but you know it will come at a cost. God is with you. As you seek to forgive that person who hurt you to the core, God is with you. As you seek to serve in an area of ministry that you thought you never would, it's like so out of your comfort zone, so beyond what you thought you would do, God is with you. I mean, what, what is too great for you to do if God is with you? We cry, Father, knowing that God is, that God is near. Second B, we cry, Father, knowing that he, is, he will help us. I'm guessing I'm not the only dad, especially when your kids are young, when you begin to tune out that word dad, right? Your kids are dad, dad, dad. And after some point, you almost don't hear it. 
Um, our God, with billions of people crying out, Dad, never tunes us out. I mean, think about it. Paul could have used other terms to describe God's love and faithfulness. Like, you could have just spelled it out. Like, hey, by the way, God loves you. He's gonna be faithful. Try to hold on to that. And that really would have offered the truth we need. But he, he specifically wants to paint this picture of a God who is there when we need him. So we get to cry out, Father, because he is there for us and he will help us. And so, beloved, you need to believe that God is present and active and will grant you every grace that you need. This doesn't mean that he always gives you what you want or that he takes away all your difficulties, but he will always act in a way that is right and good for us. Again, he'll grant us every grace that we need. And this daily promise of grace should be so encouraging. Like, what are you going through that you need grace? God will give you that grace. In counseling, one of the things that I, I sometimes tell people is that they don't need to figure out how to get through the next three years or the next three months or even the next three weeks because God says he'll give us grace every day and his mercies are new every morning. The meaning all we need to do is trust that I can get through today by God's grace. And then when I wake up in the morning, I can trust that I'll be able to get through that day by God's grace. And the next morning, he'll give me the grace that I need. And obviously this is true for your suffering. Some of you are in some pretty challenging situations right now. And don't worry about getting through the next month or even the next week. Believe you can get through today. God will give you the grace to get through today. And when you wake up, believe that God will give you the grace for that day. But to our point, this helps us to love others. For example, as you try to persevere in a difficult and prolonged counseling situation, maybe it's hard, maybe you hurt, maybe they hurt, maybe they're rebellious, maybe you don't know what to do, believe that God's grace will be with you every single time. And so you can have one of those rough sessions and things seem to go haywire. Believe that God will give you grace to show up another time and to love them well, because God will help you. As you, seek to, as you struggle to love someone you have to see every week at church, Maybe someone who, who just hurt you, or someone who failed you in some way, believe God will give you the grace. He'll help you. Maybe it's like a decision. Maybe you're thinking through ministry or going to seminary. Believe that God will help you. He's near. I think one of the greatest lessons I've learned about ministry over the last few years isn't a skill or some specific theological truth. It's this, that I'm weak, but God is present and powerful and he will help me. And that gets me through the next day. See in your notes, we cry, Father, knowing he is loving. Remember what Paul wrote in chapter two, verse 20, right? I live by faith in the son of God who loves me. In other words, as God calls me to do all these things, I need to remember that reality, that he loves me. I'm gonna serve out of that reality. I'm gonna give out of that reality. I'm gonna be kind and patient out of that reality. In our passage, Paul gives a, a kind of a more visceral example of what it means to know God's love. It's, it's this ability to cry out, Abba, Father. It's not a cold idea, oh, by the way, God loves you. It's this thing that I can cry out to God. And again, I think the idea being that Paul wants us to know and experience the love of our Heavenly Father. He understood that what was crucial to the Christian life was to understand that love. Now, there's obviously a lot we can talk about here, and we're actually gonna come back to this in March, but let me just offer a couple of important ideas. First, because he loves us, we can know that what he ordains for our life is right and good. But even in our passage, we see God's sovereignty, right? It says that he sent Jesus when he deemed the time is right, the fullness of time. God's in control of all things. But this should make us pause and consider the difficult aspects of life and church. 
God has a plan for it. There's a beautiful purpose for it. Even if we can't see it, nothing is ever lost in God's economy. That difficult person you're serving with, that person in small group who seems way too opinionated about the wrong things, that struggling brother and sister that you've been with for years and hasn't seemed to improve, it has all been ordained by God. And that should bring us incredible comfort to know that God is doing something loving and kind through it all. And second, because God loves us, we can know that whatever he asks of us is also both right and good. In other words, every rule and commandment that God gives you is an act of love. Uh, think about it. When, when you ask your kid to, to, to love uh, someone at school that's hard to love, do you do it because you hate them? You do it because you love them. Like you want so much for them. Even when it seems so hard for them to love that person, you do it because you love them. Whatever God is calling you to do, he's doing it for your good. Again, as he calls you to, to give generously or um, just believe there's a purpose in it. Maybe it's just to, to wean you from the false treasures of the world so that you can truly enjoy, enjoy the treasure that is, that is Christ. As he, call, as he calls you to love someone who's completely different than you. Believe it's with a purpose. Maybe it's to show you the nature of your own heart so that you can grow in kindness. As he calls you to persevere in serving or sharing the gospel, believe it's with purpose. Maybe simply so that, that as you serve, that you would serve under his power, knowing the weakness is in the way and, and really the only way that you'll be able to continue is by trusting who God is and how great he is. Again, we'll come back to this in March, but for now, just we have to live out of the reality that God loves us. Finally, D, we cry, Father, knowing he'll be faithful to his promises. Verse seven, so you're no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. As heirs, we receive an inheritance, and more than just salvation, it's every promise that God offers us. In fact, in Romans eight seventeen, it says, we are fellow heirs with Christ. What a, what a stunning word, idea. We are fellow heirs with Christ. As one commentator put it, everything that Christ receives by divine right, we receive by divine grace. And so we cry out knowing God will be faithful to his promises. Think about the hundreds of promises and truths that we as Christians get to hold on to. They are yours. And you can cry out to God and you can believe that he will always be faithful to those promises. So let's cry out to God knowing what it means about his presence and his help and his love and his promises. Now, before I close, one simple way to apply this is just to take those four previous ideas and let them fuel your faith. In other words, in your struggles, in your struggle to persevere or to love or to be faithful, as it says in Colossians 3.2, you, you have your choice of what you set your mind on, the things above or the things of earth. Set your mind on things above. So imagine some aspect of church is hard. What if instead of focusing on the heart of it, you focus on God's presence? Like, okay, he's near, like he's with me. He'll get me through this difficulty. Or imagine you're, you're, you're serving and tired. What if instead of focusing on all you had to do, you thought about God's help? Whatever he set before you, he will help you do it. He will give you the grace you need. Imagine you're struggling to love someone. They have different political views or different ways to raise their kids or different thoughts on theology. What if you focus on God's love for you and how he brought them into your life because he loves you and his call to love them again is because he loves you? Or when you're going through a difficult time of ministry, what if instead of meditating on all the bad things that have happened, or all the things you wish you'd done differently, or all the ways you wish someone would have, was, was behaving better, what if you meditated on the promises of God? He's present, active, loving. He'll use all things for your good. He's conforming you to the image of Christ. 
The idea of simply being is that we're almost applying what Paul describes here. We're gonna cry out to God. We're gonna think about who he is. Let me close with this. I was thinking of a, a lot of different examples of the difficulties of the Christian life. Um, and again, maybe one of the hardest is just loving difficult people. I, we would love to think because we're a church then we're all just great people, but we're all sinners, right? That's why we're here because we recognize that reality. Well, one of the foster parents from our church sent me this quote about loving, loving the families of the children you're fostering. Because as much as kind of unification is the hope, some of these families aren't fit to be parents. And so seemingly they become our adversaries. And yet through it all, we're called to love them, right? Called to love these broken, sinful, hard people. And so how do we do this? Of all the things, that's really hard. It's through the gospel, through living out the reality that God loves us and gave himself for us. The author wrote this. He said, brokenness pulls us into these relationships in the first place. So it is no surprise when brokenness touches them still. Sometimes loving people who are so hard to love feels impossible. But friend, you were loved by God when you were hard to love and you are still. When I'm weary and weak and unwilling, I remember this love shown to me an enemy that has colored every part of my life. It is the love of Christ that made my dead heart alive and able to love and give me the strength to do all, the, to do all things, even love my foster child's family. For foster families, they need to cry out, right? Abba, Father and cling to the reality that he loves them. And each of us needs to do the same. So beloved, what has God called you to do? Believe that because of the gospel, that burden can be a blessing. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace and for your mercy and for the opportunity just to, to again consider the gospel, not just the judicial side, not just we're forgiven, though that would be enough, but the relational side and to consider what it means that you, you, the God of this universe, are a heavenly father and we can cry out to you. I pray specifically for those that come this morning with heavy hearts. Lord, may they feel that freedom and the excitement to call out to you, their great God. We thank you, we love you, we praise you, and we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.